So here's what we have out of Proverbs 24. I picked verse 12. You may say that it is none of your business, but God knows and judges your motives. He keeps watch on you. He knows, and he will reward you according to what you do. That's a great scripture. Today's Palm Sunday, and I I asked Lisa to uh, get me some actual palm leaves. You know, Palm Sunday, today is the anniversary of the day that Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem um, at the beginning of the Passion Week, and um, we call it that. He didn't call it that, but... um, And the people, a lot of the people, knew who he was, and they waved palm branches, and they literally laid their cloaks down on the ground so that the donkey he was riding on, the colt he was riding on, wouldn't get its feet dirty. They were really worshiping Jesus and making a big fuss. And um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a big day, not because the Lord was so honored. That's true. But that's not why it's a big, big day in my heart. And it's just, it's just almost, you know, it's almost killing me not to teach on this today. I'm not going to do it because I've got something else I believe the Spirit wants us to deal with. But this scripture, the scriptures that describe Palm Sunday are so significant because people say you can't prove the Bible and it's just not true. And if you study the Old Testament, you will find teachings in there that will say things will happen on a certain day, after a certain period of time, after certain historical declarations, and they came true. And this is one of them, and it's a pretty major one, and I, I love the date. Um, Jesus rode into the city, and he fulfilled these very, very specific prophecies found in the book of Daniel. Today I'm going to start instead a two-part message that's really aimed, um, it's an Easter, Easter series, and uh, today's message, for those of you who like history, um, um, today's going to be, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time building up some hist- historical information. And, uh, uh, and for those of you who like me to go scripture, 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 I'll get to that later in the message and way more next Sunday. Um, but um, so, so bear with me if you're going, wait a second, Terry, isn't this supposed to be the word of God? Yes, we'll be in the word of God. We will be, I promise. Okay, okay. So just, just hang on. I saw something as I was preparing for this months ago, a couple months ago. I saw something as I was in my study and going through, through some things. I saw an image, and it startled me for, 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 for some crazy reasons. It captivated me because the image I saw took the stories we know in the Bible out of this romanticized, almost fairy tale kind of a setting and brought it into today, into today for me in a way that I hadn't really seen it for a while. If you ever get to go to Rome as a tourist, I've never been there. Maybe someday I'll go. I don't know, but I've never been there. Um, one of the most visited sites is, of course, the Roman Colosseum. And um, you're probably a little bit familiar with what the Colosseum was. It was built, started in about the year 72 by an emperor named Vespasian. And um, it took him about eight years to build. He didn't finish it. He died. His son came in as the next emperor, and they finished it about eight years after it was started. It was a pretty big structure. 140 feet tall, was huge. It, it seated 50,000 people at its max, which that's a big stadium even by today's standards when they have you know, cranes and plumbing systems and hot dog machines. I mean, it takes a lot to get 50,000 50, people in a place and feed them all, right? I mean, I mean it was a pretty major deal back then. And all around the building, it had, it had about 80 entrances, Seven or six, 76 of those entrances actually were numbered. And so here's a picture of the numbered entrance. Hard to see. You might say, where's the number? I just see letters. Remember Roman numerals? It was actually Rome that Roman numerals 
came from, right? Makes sense. Oh, okay, I get it from third grade. Okay, Roman numerals. So four of the gates were not numbered, and they weren't numbered for a couple of reasons. They had different names, but there was, there was an emperor's gate. There were other VIP gates. There was a gladiator's gate. A couple of the gates were known as the gate of life and the gate of death. The emperors came, or the, uh, the gladiators would come in through what was called the gate of life. And their personal goal, of course, was to do their gladiator thing and then be able to go back out the gate of life. There was another gate called the gate of death. If you were an animal that was killed or a gladiator who died, that's the gate you went out. And so um, there, were gate, there was a gate for VIPs. I guess if you were a senator, you got your special you know, entrance. If you were the emperor or his family, there was one gate just for you. And um, so this was quite a, quite a building. It, it actually had a wooden floor. And if you see pictures of the ruins now, and I should have brought a picture of this one too, but if you, if you sit in the stadium and you look down, you'd see all this structure. Well, there was a wooden floor over this structure, and then they would actually f- put sand on the top of the wood. And underneath the floor, there would be passageways, and that's where the gladiators would move around and the wild animals and different things. Sometimes they would take the sand and the floor out, fill the thing with water, and actually reenact naval battles in this stadium. It's a pretty, pretty major deal. Kind of like they do that at the Tacoma Dome now. They take everything out, put in dirt, and they have monster trucks, which is way cooler than naval battles. But <laughs> you ever been to one of those things? They're pretty cool. I mean, they're loud. That's really, they're really cool. I mean, it's like loud and exhaust fumes. and It's great. It's wonderful. <laughs> And, uh, but but this, this place was used essentially for s- centuries, really, as an arena of death. I mean, that's, uh, that's not an over-dramatization. It was, it was an arena of death. There were gladiators that would go in there, and they would fight to the death. There were executions that happened in there. They would stage these hunts where they would let wild animals loose in the floor, and these hunters would go, and you know, they would kill the animal, or the animal would kill them. There's no hard and fast number about how, uh, how many deaths actually occurred there. But estimates, I've seen estimates for the number of humans that died there of somewhere between half a million and a million over 400 years. But let's just be conservative say it was only half a million people. You had no idea, did you? And the number of animals that died in these, these, these staged hunts was greater than a million in those 400 years. Pretty amazing. Today, if you go to Rome and want to visit the Colosseum, you go to a gate and you buy a ticket and you walk in and you go to the inside through what's called the Emperor's Gate. You get to go to that special place. And here's the picture that amazed me. Here's what you see as a tourist, a bunch of tourists, a handful of tourists walking into the Colosseum. Do you notice the cross there? Do you see that? I mean, it's... It's, it's amazing. You know, you're coming into the Colosseum, into the emperor's box, and here's this cross. Now, if you, if you walk around and you study the place, you'll find that there are multiple crosses in various places, including um, um, many that were dedicated there by Pope Benedict XIV, and that was back in the 1700s. Why did he go and dedicate the Colosseum, this arena of death, and put these crosses up in these different places? This one big cross, there's one huge cross that's on the inside, and you'll see this is actually the, where the emperor's box used to be, where the emperor would sit. And you see where he would sit, this big monument with this big, wonderful cross there. Imagine that. The guy who used to preside over the execution of Christians 
where he sat, now stands this cross, this amazing cross. You know, so there are these different crosses, and in fact, this Friday, Good Friday, the Pope will go, I think tradition is on Good Friday that the Pope goes to the different stations of the cross at the Colosseum. So there are different, there are places, there are crosses there, and, um, you know, why, why to me, I guess you might say, okay, nice, Terry, there, I've seen crosses before, move on. Why are these crosses, you know, which were added so much later than all this stuff went on? Why are they so interesting? Why are they so significant to you, Terry? And, um, you know, I, I want to just ask for a minute for you to come with me on an imaginary journey, okay? So, as best you can, dial your mental clocks back to about the time of Jesus and the Roman Colosseum, or actually, let's say, 30, 40, 50 years after he was crucified. And we're going to gather up some people, and we're going to talk to them. Here's who we're going to gather. We're going to gather a bunch of slaves who worked in the darkness and in the shadows of the Colosseum, and their job was to go out between the performances and drag out the dead bodies, the carcasses of the animals, the slain gladiators, the cut-off arms. They had to clean up the mess. Graphics, sorry. But that was their job. So we want some of those, those people. How about if we get some of the parents of the gladiators? You know, I don't think the parents came to the gladiator shows like you go to your kids' soccer matches. But let's find the parents of some of the people who died because almost all of the gladiators were slaves. They were conscripted. There were a few volunteers, but mostly they were not there by their choice. Let's, let's, let's get the parents, too, of some of the Christians who were executed uh, by Nero at a place called Nero Circus. There was another, there's another place called Nero Circus, and it wasn't too far away, down the road a bit. And um, it was longer, if you've ever seen the movie Ben-Hur and you remember the chariot race, the circus was like that. It was a long deal. They would make seven laps, I think. It ended up being five miles. It was, it was, a, it was a long way around, and, and in the center there was a spine, and they had a process, this built-up kind of a structure down the center. So it was a long, oblong racetrack, wide tra- racetrack. You get a lot of chariots and horses in there at the same time. And they would use that spine, and they would have a way of executing Christians at different places along that spine. It was this big entertainment, big form of entertainment. Let's get some of the parents, or maybe the relatives, the brothers and the sisters of some of the people that were executed there, because we want to include them in the group. And um, maybe also, let's just get some of the Christians who lived in the neighborhood over the 400 years that the Colosseum was being used in this, this, you know, Christians who were living in the shadow maybe, but they were kind of quiet about things because they lived in constant fear that one of these leaders would decide that, hey, let's go get those people because they're the next show. Um, Let's get them. Okay, so we got slaves, we got, you know, parents of the brothers and sisters and all these people. And um, so we're going to get them all together and we're going to start telling them some facts as we see them because we have this special viewpoint to come from way off in the future. We're not going to tell them we're from the, from the future because that would pop the bubble here. So don't, we're not going to tell them that. But we're going to say to them some things, some facts. We're going to say, someday there will be in this arena of death, this Colosseum, a cross that sits where the emperor shows up right now. A cross that doesn't represent all of the crucifixions that, that Rome became famous for and became very skilled at and became expert at using as a form of execution and torture. 
it won't represent all of those. That cross that, that's going to actually sit on the emperor's chair is going to represent one single crucifixion, one single death. It isn't going to represent the power of Rome. Someday, a simple cross is going to sit in the emperor's box. And, and that, that, that simple cross, which represents one single crucifixion of a Jewish carpenter. Now, they're kind of humoring us by this point. They're going, oh, listen, Rome is never going to let go of this thing. There is never going to be a time when a cross is going to take the chair away from the emperor. You guys are nuts. You can say, no, no, no. It is. It's going to represent this Jewish carpenter. It's just this guy who lived 1,500 miles from here. He, he never, that guy never traveled more than 25 miles from his home. Never traveled that far. He, had, he was a public figure for only three years. He was betrayed by his own people. He was executed by the Roman authorities. And somehow, though, his message is going to transform the entire world. We're, we're telling this to these slaves, these people who've been under the thumb of the Romans. And when that cross goes up, it's not going to represent Rome or even crucifixion in general. It's going to represent one single crucifixion as a reminder of who he was, his message, his death, and his resurrection. And what if we say to those same people, you know, someday hundreds of millions of people are going to gather every Sunday in honor of this Jewish carpenter, his death and his resurrection, They're going to worship. They're going to put their faith in him. And over that time, the Roman cross will no longer say anything about Rome. Instead, it's going to be about one specific crucifixion. Someday, every winter, people are going to tell stories about a little baby that was born somewhere. And Caesar Augustus will be in the story. But he's going to be a footnote. The story's not even going to be about him. It's going to be about a baby who's going to change the world. Now, we're talking to these slaves, and they're going, okay, I've heard of imaginations before. Someday, people are going to travel to this city, Rome, and they're going to want to look around. Here's what they're not going to ask. They're not going to be asking, where were the emperors buried? Where did the senators get buried? No. Those people will come someday to this city, and what they're going to do is they're not going to go see the magnificent Roman Senate. They're going to walk through the ruins of the Roman Senate, and they're going to say things like this. Where was the Apostle Paul buried? And, of course, these people are going to say, who's the Apostle Paul? Who's the Apostle? Well, he's just another Jewish guy who lived 1,500 miles away, and He was taking this message of this other guy around the world, and the Romans didn't like it. He was too famous and caused too many many problems, so they cut his head off. Thing is, more is going to be known about this Apostle Paul than almost all of the emperors put together. This is getting more impossible with everything we add to this story. We're going to tell, the people are going to come to visit this city, and in fact, more are going to go visit this other place this, there's, a, there's a building that is so magnificent, it way outshines the Colosseum. And uh, it's called the Basilica of St. Peter. You've probably seen it in the news lately. It's, it's another way, way more magnificent building. It seats 60,000 people. It was built in honor of another Jewish fisherman who lived 1,500 miles away. And, uh, you know, this guy had no political influence, he never raised an army. 
And believers yet would spend over 100 years building this basilica, this, this, this big, huge church, and they would name it after this fisherman, but it was built in the honor of that first Jewish guy, that first carpenter guy, built to the glory of a savior, and then named after one of his followers, the apostle Peter. One day, someday, people will wear these crosses around their neck, and it'll be a decoration. Instead of a symbol of torture and execution, it'll be people will wear it around their neck. I can see them hanging here right now. People will wear them. And the thing is, they won't represent all these crucifixions. They're going to represent a single, specific crucifixion. Just one single one. Would these people have believed you? I'm, I'm going to suggest the answer is no. They would have looked at you and said, you know, <laughs> hey, stranger, where are you from? You obviously don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. You're crazy. A single crucifixion changing the meaning I mean, I, there's just no way that some Jewish carpenter has that kind of power output. There's just Galilee, Judea, Judea. What good thing ever came from there? I don't even know where those are. Those things you're talking about are never going to happen. Yet today, today, 2013, a cross sits in the emperor's seat in the Colosseum. That just boggled my mind. You know, maybe, maybe when you were in high school, we're done with the slaves and back in time now, we're back to today. Maybe when you were in high school or... Um, or college, you um, had a class that was in history or ancient history, and, and somebody explained something to you. They, you know, maybe it was a 10-minute explanation, or maybe they dedicated a whole day to it, or maybe there was a whole class on it that was the explanation for the rise and the spread of Christianity. Maybe you've been schooled a little bit on you know, what the world would teach about how this happened, how this came about. You might not remember it. You know, maybe it was just that brief. And in some kind of secular non-religious, non-supernatural terms, they tried to explain to you why Christianity spread the way that it did. Trying to explain how a peasant carpenter over the course of three years so galvanized a following that that following outlasted the Roman Empire? I... I mean, I don't see how... The problem is this, and you can read articles on this. There's lots out there. You can Google it. The problem is that the explanations that have come up so far, the human explanations, just don't hold water. They don't. You, 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 there's so much to have overcome. There's so much that you just have to write off. It's just, you know, how do you explain the fact that that cross is sitting there? I mean, a cross that doesn't represent crucifixion in general, but one single... How, did, how, how is it that Jesus in the course of just three years, shared a message that was, frankly, so vanilla, really, so undifferent, I mean, so <laughs> unextraordinary, except in one regard that we're going to talk about in a minute. He never got outside of his region because, you know, travel then was by foot. How far can you walk? I mean, you got to get home at night. You can't go too far. He never really traveled, um, you know, and... and his own leaders in his own faith declared him to be a traitor. Um, he was condemned there. Why is it that this message lived beyond his short life? Why is it that it persists and it spread around the world? Then, then there's something else in history that you probably 
maybe you've questioned, but you probably don't know about because there's not a lot that's, that's taught on this. It's glossed over in history classes. About 25, roughly 25 years later, after uh, Jesus was executed and rose, the Jewish people actually started a, row, a war against Rome. Sounds kind of crazy. If you think about it, you know a lot of stories in the Bible where the Jewish people were a mighty and a powerful and unstoppable force. But at the time of Jesus, they were under the thumb of Roman rule. And, and they're, they're, they, were, they weren't viewed as a powerhouse. But about 25 years later, they started thinking, you know, we've had enough of this. And they literally decided, okay, we've got to push these Romans out. You can read about this. It's called the Jewish Wars. You can Google it. Um, and they said, we've got to do this. So they raised up some armies, and they actually attacked several cities and forced the Romans out. And, um, of course, Rome, not to give up territory like this, didn't like that idea very much. So uh, they sent this guy named Vespasian. He wasn't the emperor yet, but they sent Vespasian, and he, was, he oversaw something called the 10th Legion, and they show up, and they decide, okay, we're going we're gonna to do some. So they started doing some battles there, but it wasn't quite enough. In, while the battles are going on, Vespasian gets promoted, and he becomes the emperor of Rome. He leaves. His son comes in, Titus Vespasian. I've mentioned him before. And he takes dad's 10th legion, but he brings along with him um, the 5th legion and the 15th legion. So now there's three times as many Roman soldiers, and they're, they're intent on taking back this, this area. And um, so they finally center on Jerusalem. It's just kind of everything seems centers on Jerusalem even today. Have you noticed that? So the whole Roman Empire is centered on Jerusalem. This is the center of, of problems then. And their plan was to try to intimidate the people inside to give up. So what do they do? They, uh, they started crucifying Christians, or Christians, and they had Christians circling the city. There were crosses all around. They were trying to scare the people inside. Give up, give up. They wouldn't. And so, um, you know, the way bigger numbers of Romans there, they finally got so angry, they said, okay, so the, in they go into the city. They finally take the city. And when they did, they forced everybody to leave. They entered the city, forced everybody out, and, uh, you know, it was a protracted battle, and now they're angry about, uh, about that, so they chase them all out. And, and, and here's what happened. As they forced them out, they also forced them out of the temple. And um, something significant happened. On August 6th of 70 AD, a specific date, the very last sacrifice under the Mosaic Law was happening in the temple. And as Titus Vespasian and his legions went in, that had been the last one the very last one. Have you ever wondered, you know, hey, there's Jews that live around us, but I don't notice them sacrificing animals, right? But that's what their faith was. It's, you've read it, and you know, when did that stop? Why did that stop? Here's the day that it stopped. And the human reasoning why is because the city was over, over, overrun and taken over by the Romans. In fact, here's something else that's a, that's a rabbit trail. I won't go on this one for very long. But they, the, the Romans were so frustrated that what happened was one of the leaders... Um, lit the temple on fire, and the thing burned down. And Vespasian, the commander, was upset. Do you remember when Jesus made a prediction? He said, one stone will not stand on top of another. The day will come when the... He he said those issues. He made that prediction. So here we are, 25, 20-some number of years later. A centurion lights the place on fire. Vespasian's ticked off because he knows that the temple is full of the instruments that are made of gold. He says, you get in there and you find every ounce of melted gold. I want it all. 
And they literally, he, he put his troops in the building and they tore the building apart, stone by stone, fulfilling that prophecy. Anyway, that's a pretty cool rabbit trail. I'll come back on, on the main trail. So <coughs> Titus took the city and the temple and that was the end of ancient Judaism as we know it. It stopped. The temple sacrifices stopped. You can read that. Um, but on that day, as the Jews left the city, they began a different brand of Judaism, which is similar to more, more like what we see now. The Judaism described in the Mosaic Law, as we read about it in the Old Testament, ended on August 6th of 1970. And now here's why that's so important. The, the reason is because the context, the context for everything that Jesus was teaching was the Old Testament. Jesus was the Lamb of God. They understood, the Jews of that day, in fact, even the non-Jews, understood that God was going to send a lamb. He was the Lamb of God. And uh, um, they they understood that context. Jesus always was talking about the laws of Moses, and he was in the temple, and all of these things. So the context for what Jesus was teaching in those days, it just evaporated the day that, that they got chased out, and it was destroyed. I'm not saying the teachings of Jesus Evaporate. I'm saying the context, everything's different. Everything's different. Just in the course of a few days. So you look at all that, all of these problems, why in the world did this message last? Why did it make it out of the first century? You know, why would somebody choose to follow a guy who calls himself the son of God? Oh, what God would that be? Well, the Jewish God. The same God that kind of hovers around and shows up at the temple. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Okay. The same temple that's been destroyed. Yeah. It's never been rebuilt. Right, that's the one. The God of those sacrifices that stopped. Yeah, 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 that's the one. All of a sudden, it's hard to figure out why we should follow. You know, people in, the, in, the, in their mindset, they're going, that, I, I don't get it. I'll be nice to smile at you, but... You're nuts. You're nuts. When the temple went away, the entire context of what Jesus had been teaching went away. But today, this day, there's a cross that represents our Savior standing in the emperor's box in the Colosseum. How did this impossible thing get here? Somehow. The the cross that represents Christ is standing in this crumbling symbol of the Roman era. There's the cross standing there. 2,000 years later, his cross is what we think about when we think about crucifixion. We think about Jesus' cross. Here we are because, and, and, and why we got here, how did all this happen after all these years? I think there's two really good reasons why, and that's where I want to kind of visit briefly before we wrap up today. There's two reasons. At the core of his message was a brand new kind of love, a brand new kind. And at the core of his experience, his, his, his story was a resurrection. It was a radical love. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And an undeniable resurrection, which I'm going to spend plenty of time on next week. This, this unexplainable love, this unconditional love coupled with an event And his message of love coupled with this go-see-it-for-yourself resurrection. Go see it. 
you know, the people were saying, it was there. There, was, there were these witnesses and there were hundreds and actually thousands of people who saw him afterwards. It was, go see it for yourself. And this kind of love that was new, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit today. As a result of all that, I believe that's how come today there's a cross in the emperor's box. You know, I'm making a big deal out of that. You know, with all that in mind, with all this context in mind and this history and the impossible way that the Christianity could have come into today, keep that context in mind. I want to read to you these scriptures. So, and the other thing I want to say about this is, is that this may not seem groundbreaking to you because it's actually already in the fabric of American culture. So this doesn't seem so new to you and me, but this is, it's commonplace. In fact, it's commonplace to us. Um, we've heard it so many times. Okay, so Jesus gathers all of his closest followers, and we, see, we pick up now in John 13, verse 34. A new command I give you. And now when we read this, we're going to think, hey, this isn't new, you know, but it was new to them. A new command I give you. By the way, <laughs> this word, little word new here, the Greek word here, can be interpreted as strange, unusual, or fresh. This new command I give you, I know you've already got 10 commandments, and then you've built about 600 rules to help you with those commandments, um, but today I'm going to give you a new one. Here's what the new one is. Love one another. We all go, yeah, 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 yeah. No, but he's saying to these guys, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you, not as you've been loved by others, not the conditional love that you get from your social f- network and your friends, not the kind of love that's described in Greek and Roman literature, but he's just saying right up front, you're to love, love each other. And, and in that statement, Jesus was declaring something that was so unusual to them that I think it took these guys a significant amount of time to get their minds and their hearts wrapped around it. What Jesus did, what he was saying in that, that moment was this. Every single person has value. Every man, every woman, and every child has value. Every rich person and poor, male, female, slave, and free. Every person has value. There are no qualifications. I want you to love, to love, to love. I want you to love one another the way that I've loved you. It's a new standard. It's a new equalizer. I want you to love one another. And then this is is the part which I think the church in general has forgotten over and over and over again. And when the local church, when the national church, and when the international church remembers this, when when we keep our focus on this one simple idea and and use it, but it's good. But when we start to use other measurements to measure our spirituality or our relationship with God, you know, using other terms, that's when we kind of get off the mark and things kind of go haywire. So listen to what he, he goes on to say, verse 35. By this, by this one thing, by one thing. So it's not, you know, Baptist, it's not based on your church attendance. You know, Presbyterians, it's not based on how much you know. Catholic, it's not how many times you go to Mass. By this one thing, everyone will know that you are my disciples or your fo- or followers if you love one another. I think this, this primary thing, this is the primary thing that would mark Christianity in the first century. And here's what they had. They had this unusual, 
fanatical, selfless, sacrificial, weird, never been seen before kind of love for each other. Where everybody, everybody was given value. You know, outsiders would come to their gatherings, their congregation meetings, and they'd see things that they didn't see in that culture. They'd see slaves together with freemen. They'd see rich people and poor people together. They'd see children. There'd be ex-slaves. There'd be this mix of people gathered together. And there would be an equality present there that wasn't forced. It was a natural assumed equality in terms of worth. And ever since that time, there has been a continuous thread that, that, that comes, has come through the centuries. It's always been present somewhere in the world where everybody's given value. And, and, and then Jesus would go and he would say, I want you to love your enemies because your enemies have value to your heavenly father. This is radical talk. This is radical. Peter and Paul come along later. And they say, they write their letters to um, churches that you read in the New Testament. And they, they, they have the audacity to take it even a step further. They say, hey men, love your wives. Wow. Men, you love your wives. Now, you and I, you know, we can't understand. We're still, you know, confused sometimes when we see this missing in other cultures. In the culture that this was being said, Women were just a little notch higher than a slave. Women didn't have the value that you and I press for in our society. They, they didn't. And, and, and Jesus and later his disciples, they, they come along. You know, women at this point, they were, they were traded like cattle. They were disrespected. They had no rights. They could not own property. They didn't have any rights. And Jesus and his disciples come along later, and they were teaching this new, this radical form of love. Can you imagine the cultural shock. Men love your wives. Well, I take care of my wife like I do my cattle. Try that, guys, and let me know how that works out for you, would you? <laughs> Men, love your wives. How much should you love your wife? Well, it isn't just like, you know, elevator sum. These words are amazing. He says, Men, love your wives. How much do I love? Well, Love them like Christ loved the church. How much did Christ love the church? Wow, I don't know. I mean, he gave his life up for the church. That's how much I got to love my wife? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I just said that publicly. Man, oh man, what did I think? <laughs> and in those moments, through the teachings of the New Testament, you'll see this lesson, the status of women was elevated to a place they had never been before. And frankly, to a place that it still hasn't reached in some parts of the world today. I mean, when we hear about what happens sometimes in some cultures to women, in cultures that are you know, non-religious or non-Christian, we, we can't believe it. Just, it appalls us to think women are treated that way. But that was the norm until this new ethic of love was launched. And it was launched by the words of our Savior and those who were following him. Then Paul even takes it a step further. He writes this letter to this, this, this church in a town called Colossae. We see that letter. We call it the book of Colossians. And he says this, Masters, treat your slaves with respect. Do justly by your slaves. Because one day, your master, your Savior, who happens to be their master and their Savior, that Savior, it's one and the same. 
One day you're going to give to your father a heavenly account for how you treat those that the Lord has entrusted to you. And uh, you don't own them, so treat them well. And now this was radical. I mean, the economy there was driven, it was driven in part on slave power. The Roman economy, the Greek economy, this was a big deal. This is a big deal. You know, and yeah, it is a big deal. And, And that's my point. What's so common to us in our way of thinking was radical thinking in those days. It was radical thinking. You know, and, you know, as people would then encounter Christians, they would, they would see something changing, and I'm going to come to that. I mean, you might even say to yourself, well, they shouldn't have even had slaves, Terry. Why are you making a point of it? That's my point. That's how radical this message was. Treat your slaves well. Wow. That's just amazing. It's just amazing things that are going on here. Their, their, their culture is being turned upside down by this new commandment that Jesus was giving them. Do you remember, you probably remember there's a story in the New Testament where Jesus basically corrects his leadership around him and says, hey, 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 don't stop these kids from coming up here. They get to come up here too. And that was radical. But they're thinking, but, but you're a teacher. You could be the Messiah. We've seen the powerful things you do with those hands. You can't be sullied by a bunch of little kids. And Jesus is saying, hold on a minute. If these hands are, hands are good enough to raise the lame, if these hands are good enough to heal the leper, then they're good enough to embrace children. Let them come here. And Jesus was giving value to those things that weren't highly valued. He was giving rights and recognition to people that didn't have rights. And that, by the way, I believe is God's thumbprint. That's God's thumbprint to put value in things that you and I question whether it's worth something. God says, yeah, it's important to me. I value it. That person, you know, Lisa and I have this ongoing dialogue. I, uh, you know, it's, here's some unzip uh, transparency. One of my character flaws is I get on the, I get on the road and <laughs> I want everybody else to drive like I do. Okay, so so here's the deal. When you get on the on-ramp, it's your responsibility to get up to speed and blend. That's your responsibility. (laughs) Do I sound angry? I am! You know, and and it just drives me crazy when somebody gets on and they're going putt, 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 and all the cars start putting their brakes on and people behind me are going, I'm thinking, and Lisa chuckles because I, I kind of grumble in the car. I'm going, I learn how to drive. And then in about 30 seconds, I'll say, oh, that, I have to treat that person like she's my daughter or my wife. Would I want some guy yelling at my daughter or my wife? Okay, here's space, honey. Blend on in. I'll make a place for you. I mean, I struggle. I struggle sometimes putting value where God does. We get this viewpoint about what we think we should see, and we forget. It's become so commonplace. Love one another. They're important to me, he says. I value even your enemies. Wow, that's so hard, Jesus. But Terry, sometimes you behave like my enemy, but I love you anyway. Oh, shrivel. How can I shrivel some more? 
God never wants you to shrivel. He wants you to grow. He wants your heart bigger. He doesn't want it squashed. But he wants you to use it to love his thumbprint. And there's reasons why this scripture is so important to you and to me. I mean, I think, you know, we, we look around in our culture, our own culture, and we see things we don't like. That should change. We shouldn't have that law. We, don't, we shouldn't... I, mean, I saw it on TV. We have this deal on Sunday mornings. The TV's, you know, we have TVs on in our house. I don't know why. It's probably noise to a lot of you, but it's just we, TV's going. But we have a rule. There's only certain programs that should be on on a Sunday morning because I don't want my mind getting revved up on something that's going to make me, you know, get distracted. <laughs> because there's so much that's in, uh, uh, that comes on the broadcast that I look at it and I go, oh, no. Lord, forgive us. And somehow, Lord, change hearts, you know. And you, if you had the opportunity to come up here with your microphone and talk, there'd probably be things you'd say, this, 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 this. We should change these things. And, you know, you'd say there's things in America that need to change. And, and, and so, so we should, there, we should vote, which I agree we should vote. And I think, you know, sometimes we want to put signs in our yard, and I think there's a time for signs in the yard, and some of us want to, you know, put bumper stickers on. There's a time for bumper stickers, and petitions are good. Sign the petition. There's a time and a season for that. All of those things are part of our American culture, and they're all part about, you know, they're a part about bringing change, and I'm, I'm not saying don't do those things, but I'll tell you what we know works. Changing a culture. Radical Radical, irrational, unusual, unconditional love for one another will change a culture. It will. And the reason that I know that is because there's a Pickens cross in the emperor's box that shouldn't have been, been there. And two things happened. A resurrection and a radical new love. Historically speaking, the message of Jesus should have died when he died when he was crucified, but it didn't because three days later, there's an event that punctuated everything that he did and everything that he said. Three days after that crucifixion, there was an event that sent hundreds of followers out into the streets and into the countryside. And, and, and those were the very streets in the neighborhood within walking distance of where all of those events had taken place. And those people couldn't shut up. Is that a bad word where you live? Shut up. I don't know if it is or not. Um, if it is, I'm sorry. But they couldn't. They couldn't. They just couldn't. They couldn't stop saying what they were saying. And, you know, from the book of Acts, here's the quick summary of the message of what they said, Acts 3, verse 15. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. They told what they had seen. And then they loved each other like crazy in radical, unusual ways. And we are here today because of a radical love and because of an undeniable resurrection. That crazy love and that undeniable resurrection catapulted Christianity out of the first century. It catapulted it out, and here it is today. We're here because of that. And we have hope. Because I, I really believe that we can know that at the end of the day, that if we have love for one another, 
if we ascribe value to every single person that just like God did in Rome, he can change our culture. He can. And the reason I believe that, you can guess, is because a cross stands in the emperor's box of a crumbling Roman Colosseum. I want to pray for you. Um, pray over us. And uh, thanks for sitting through my history lesson. I don't normally go that far, but I, I wanted to lay that stage. But I want to say this before I pray for you. If you want someone to stand with you today and agree with you for any prayer need, there will be people here to do that. Um, we have leaders who, who have a heart to care for you. They care about you, and they want to pray with you. They'll keep private whatever you share with them. And if you don't want to share anything with them, just say, pray for me. Stress at work or whatever. Just whatever, you, or as little or as much as you want. And they'll have a little tag that says, you know, prayer team. And they'll be um, right over here in this hallway. There's a room, a room in there with some coffee and seats, and they won't keep you long. I promise you nothing weird will happen to you. But something supernatural could happen. God might hear the prayer and answer it. I think it could happen. I think the chances are actually pretty high. Very, very, very high. Okay, I should pray. Quit talking.